back to the second episode. Thanks for tuning back in. I am your host, Abram Rand, and we are Mindful Memoirs, a podcast with Justice Shin, Kira Taylor, Sarah Swan, and I. It's January 28th, 2021. Just yesterday, Joe Biden signed two executive orders, one order that tackles the climate crisis at home and abroad, and another that establishes the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Last episode, you all got to know a little bit about us, and we also introduced the memoirs that each of us are reading. In today's episode, we're going to dive a little deeper into analyzing our books, discussing the passages that resonate with us, and continuing that conversation. First, I'll tell you a little about my book, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown. So first, the title kind of explains the book. But if you don't remember what I said, uh, how I explained it from the first podcast, it's really about the author, Austin Channing Brown, Austin Channing Brown, trying to find her identity and trying to embrace her blackness when a lot of the world and outsiders are constantly telling her who she is and who she isn't. And in this particular passage, she really talks about how when she's going to Cleveland, Ohio, it's definitely a different environment where it's predominantly black people instead of a predominantly white community. And so that real she really struggles with her identity and embracing her blackness when a lot of black people are calling her telling her she doesn't really fit in when she doesn't really know how to dance, she doesn't know the popular music, but she really um embraces her um, embraces her identity when she t- when she um, finds a friend Tiffany who's really accepting of her no matter if she knew the current music that all the kids were listening to or that she rather uh, she rather liked reading books and so the quote is Tiffany was my bridge to understanding that black is beautiful whether it looked nerdy like me or cool like her I could choose what felt right for me without needing to be like everyone or needing everyone to be like me Black is not monolithic. Black is expansive. And I didn't need the approval of whiteness in order to feel good in my skin. There is no whiteness available to offer an opinion. It was freedom. And so this quote to me, honestly, almost made me cry um, because I really resonated it with it. And I've reflected back on like my elementary school self when I really always wanted like a nose job because I hated my nose and I wanted to straighten my hair and I hated my lips and it was just like I needed the approval of white people in order to accept myself and so looking back at it as a 17 year old um, black woman young black woman and you know turning into being um, an activist and actually doing social justice work and using my voice it was really reassuring to hear that someone else had the same mentality just because in a predominantly white town when I started doing this work of like um, being a curriculum consultant to actually include like diverse narratives and then actually speaking to the community about um, racial justice and injustice that has you know been detrimental to the black people in this community I got a lot of um, lashback And so I was never really supported. And so this quote really um, just kind of struck me in a way where it's like someone actually had, um, someone was actually like supportive of what I was doing and actually had the same mentality as me. And so that's why I really picked this quote and really resonated with this quote. That sounds great. I loved uh, hearing about that quote and getting to hear just a little bit of your book. 
And I think it's really amazing that you can relate so well uh, so early on to your book. Like I remember last week you were talking about having almost the exact same experience as the main character in your book and now being able to reflect as you keep reading and grow with the with the main character and have still have similar experiences. I think that's really beautiful. And for a question, um, I guess, so you're talking about how the main character in your book had this friend, Tiffany, that was really able to accept them and um, for everything that they were. So is there someone or something in your life that, that you would compare to Tiffany or that you've had a similar experience like that? Yeah, I'd say um, that's a really good question. I'd say, you know, freshman year of high school when I joined the Black Student Union, um, that was kind of really my Tiffany um, because that's where I really learned kind of my roots and how to embrace being Black in a predominantly white community. And that's where I actually got to learn about my culture and learn that it's okay to be different and that I don't have to seek the approval of white people in order to, you know, make a difference and be who I am. And so that's when I actually kind of grew out of that mentality of, you know, um, perceiving myself the way others perceive me and so that's you know what's really propelled me to like continue like activist work and like social justice work because I really care and I'm really passionate about this work and I don't necessarily need anybody to really tell me that like tell me that I'm doing something wrong and that won't really affect me in that way so I'd say like joining the black student union at my school has been my Tiffany. That's awesome. That's a great connection between between Tiffany, I guess, as a symbol and, and, and our community. And you're doing so much to help our community. And uh, it's really great to hear that your book can be a direct relation to you and how you're experiencing life. Because my book is more about me learning about different perspectives. But I love to hear that you get to really relate to the main character in your book. I think that's really cool. And to transition yeah. to mine, so... Um, Hi, I'm Sarah talking again. And my book, if you don't remember from last time, I'm reading Dreams from My Father by Barack Obama. And the main focus of his book is um, really finding his roots because he grew up in a white family because uh, he's biracial. So he's searching for his roots as he moves throughout the United States and meets new people. So um, the passage I chose is from the chapter of his life where he's in Chicago and he really wants to become an organizer. So he moves to Chicago to join this group of organizers uh, and he makes a lot of friends. He really connects connects with the black community. Like Ava said, when she joined the BSU here in Orinda, this is where Obama really found his community of black people. And um, one of the women that he meets and becomes friends with is named Ruby uh, and they become friends. And one day she walks in and he notices that her eyes look different um, and they're they're not their usual brown. And he asks her and she says that she's just wearing colored cl- contacts and they're blue. And it's kind of like a nonchalant conversation. She just kind of walks away from it. But he was pretty deeply affected. So that's the intro to this passage I chose. And it's a little long, but here it is. The stories that I had been hearing from the leadership, all the records of courage and sacrifice and overcoming of great odds, hadn't simply arisen from struggles with pestilence or drought or even mere poverty. They had arisen out of a very particular experience with hate. That hate hadn't gone away. It formed a counter-narrative buried deep within each person and at the center of which stood white people, some cruel, some ignorant, sometimes a single face, sometimes just a faceless image of a system claiming power over our lives. I had to ask myself whether the bonds of community could be restored without collectively exercising that ghostly figure that haunted 
black dreams. Could Ruby love herself without hating blue eyes? So the reason this passage really spoke to me, I guess it was two things. One, um, it gave me definitely a new perspective um, or I guess a deeper perspective into the way the, that white people really affect the black community. And the, he talks about it in so many different ways, like in a specific person, or sometimes it's just a faceless image or just the community as a whole. It's um, just like centuries and a history of hate is so present. And um, the way he questions whether or not they can get through that without really, um, like he says, exercising that ghostly figure that was really um, interesting to me. And I think the the thing that this really made me think of when we were reading Stamped earlier this year, we read about how um, Obama was kind of an assimilationist. That's what Kendi said, the author, that when Obama really first became president or first started running, he was really assimilating to the to white people and I guess trying to win their approval. So I think that's what I expected going into reading this book. But reading this, it really seems like totally anti-racist. And whether that was a transition within him or within the way um, Ibram Kendi was writing about him. But for me, that was definitely a new perspective into the way he thought much earlier in his life. Wow, Sarah, that's really interesting. You're making me think a lot about um, Obama's presidency. Um, I guess I do have a question um, because, you know, over the summer, there were um, a lot of Black Lives Matter movements um, all across the country and all across the world. Um, would you say that in, in like pertaining to Obama, do you think that because he was in a system where it is dominantly in like dominantly ruled like by white men that he had to you know assimilate to the culture in order to get things done or even though he had like beliefs of being more of like a radicalist um and actually really wanting change for the black community but do you think it was because of his position that he was in that he actually had to you know assimilate to um these ideologies that we see later in his presidency or the beginning of his presidency? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's exactly what I was thinking. He's like radical in this book, which I love. And he has such strong convictions. And he, when he's in college, he really is fighting for social justice. And it's almost like a different person from the one that, I mean, I don't know Obama from his presidency that well. I'm definitely not an expert in it, but just the perception has been yeah. completely different. So yeah, I think I, I, it makes me a little bit sad, but I feel like maybe he changed when he became a public figure just because to win the presidency in a world dominated by white people you have to appeal to white people and not have a lot of radical beliefs so i i mean whether that is what actually happened within obama or that's just the way the world and different authors who wrote about him perceived it i think that is definitely something that that occurred in his life as a transition thank you for sharing sounds really interesting Um, so now, hello again. Um, it's Kira, and Justice and I are going to share a little bit more about our books. But um, my book, um, just a refresher from last week, it's Maya Angelou's memoir, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, which is kind of her coming of age story of what it was like to be a Black girl growing up in the South. Um, she was raised by her grandmother, and so. Um, in since last week what the update has been is her um, father came back to kind of say hi to them and wants to go and introduce them to her mother but since they were 
uh, almost shipped away from their parents when they're super young to live with their grandma. They're not really sure um, how to feel about going to meet their parents for the first time. And so, um, but before that happens, the passage that I chose was um, when a group of white girls who were probably, the oldest one was probably 12. They're just basically elementary school girls. They come to the store with the sole purpose to taunt her grandmother who owns a store. And so um, when this happens, Maya thinks, I wanted to throw a handful of black pepper in their faces, to throw lie on them, to scream that they were dirty, scummy peckerwoods. But I knew I was as clearly imprisoned behind the scene as the actors outside were confined to their roles. And so at such a young age, I mean, she Maya was probably seven at the time she was having this um, experience, but I I think she had a really strong understanding of the roles that were ingrained into her community. And she's able to control her emotions in a way and express them so strongly because her um, kind of analysis of this experience was how she compared her imprisonment to being forced to not respond to these white girls as almost how the white girls are in prison to these roles of being the oppressor outside. And so she kind of says that these white girls were simply actors confined to their role in society to drive like a deeper division between the black and white community in, um, in Stamps, Arkansas. And so in a way, I think she almost takes pity on them and hints that society as a whole is kind of the prime instigator of these experiences. And so um, I thought that this was really interesting because many people in the modern era are very defensive when talking about race and racism. And they use excuses like, I'm not racist. I didn't own slaves that like it doesn't affect me. But I think um, it's it's something to be considered that if society as a whole is kind of the instigator of this stuff, then we should be attacking the societal uh, like foundations instead of um, trying to, you know, cast blame on each other, we need to all kind of come together to begin to deconstruct the systems of oppressions in society. Well, um, the passage you chose was just so interesting, and I'm glad you chose to share that with the podcast. Um, but before I get into that, um, I also want to say that, like, I'm also so impressed by the amount of self-control and maturity Maya has. How old was she when this happened, Kira? I think she was seven. And I mean, like, when I was seven, I hadn't even had, I mean, personally, this is also probably because I'm a white woman living in this society, but I hadn't even thought about race. It just wasn't something that affected me. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, throughout reading her book, there's been a lot of trying to be self-reflective and apply what Maya has taken years to compose her thoughts and trying to apply that to my life. And so, I mean, I went to an all girls school. And so I, that kind of was my instigator for trying to be involved in, you know, social justice or feminist, the feminist movement. But I, I honestly think that for me, since as a white woman, it was so easy to just separate issues of discrimination into separate categories that affected me. But there are tons of people who experience multiple forms of oppression at once. And so as a white woman, it was kind of like, okay, I have to play the role of just trying to fight against sexism, but I, I hadn't really been able to 
combine the forms of discrimination and kind of just see how they're all interconnected and begin to start fighting all of them instead of just focusing on the ones that um, affected me. And so I think uh, reflecting back to your question, it's, it's clear that as a white woman, I've gotten privileges based off of my race. I mean, I'm, even though as a woman, it's, it's like I still experience discrimination through that. There's so, so many harder things that people have been through. And I really have to start challenging myself to kind of attack multiple forms of discrimination and not just the ones that affect me, because um, that's, I think that's kind of been a shortcoming of the feminist movement. You know, black women and women of color didn't even get the right to vote until a lot later than white women did. And that is kind of overlooked in history. And so I think the important thing to reflect on is how um, I have to attack multiple forms of oppression at once. So um, Justice, now can you share a little bit about your book? Yeah, um, so the book I'm reading is Stealing Buddhist Dinner by Vikman Nguyen. Um, and quick refresher, um, this book is a memoir about Vic and her family. Um, they moved from Vietnam to the United States, and it's just a story about her experience growing up in a predominantly white community. Vic um, finds, finds out that there actually is a Vietnamese community in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, and throughout the book, she struggles with her identity, um, and it's at the Vietnamese party that she also feels isolated from her own Vietnamese community. And while Nguyen feels like she should feel accepted and fit in, she also realizes that they're also very different from her, since those at the party had not fully simulated into American culture, unlike Nguyen. Um, so at the party, she notices um, a bunch of girls talking Vietnamese, pointing out at Nguyen and her sister An. Um, and so frustrated, she states, uh, quote, they're talking made my cheeks burn. Why hadn't I practiced my Vietnamese? Why hadn't I kept up? Each day, I struggled to remember even simple words to communi communicate with Nguyen. Now, all I had were her chow goi. I worried that the girls at the buffet were snickering at me and An and calling us Twinkies, yellow on the outside and white on the inside. Was that what I had longed to achieve after all? So while Nguyen desires to fit in with her white classmates, she, as stated in the quote, she doesn't want to lose her Vietnamese roots. And she states that she, she wished she had practiced her Vietnamese more and questions if fitting in with her white classmates is something she really wanted. I also struggle <laughs> speaking my mother's tongue and... My Korean isn't perfect, and I still struggle to maintain a conversation with my own relatives as well, since she she also talks about how like she can barely even talk with her noi, which is like her grandmother. Um, and since I live in America, I don't really speak as much Korean compared to English. And sadly, like Nguyen, um, as I got older, I forgot a lot of my Korean. Um, in addition to Nguyen's experience of feeling like an outsider from our own ethnic community, I think that especially really resonated with me since it's something I experience, especially when I go to Korea. Since, like when I have actually been called a Twinkie, so like I'm yellow on the outside, like I'm Asian, but deep down they tell me I'm white, I'm not even really Korean, and that like I've completely lost touch with my own Korean roots. And actually... um. 
in Korea, there's a term for that called kyopo. And basically, it means like a Korean who's born in a country besides Korea and has forgotten their Korean culture. And it's kind of just used as like an insult. And so when I'm told that I'm a kyopo, basically, it means that I'm not fully accepted as a Korean, but rather I'm seen as a foreigner. And like when... um. I struggle with my identity a lot since in Korea, well, I feel like I should feel accepted there because I am Korean ethnically. I feel, but I should feel accepted. But when I'm there, people tell me I'm not like Korean enough to be considered Korean. And in the United States, since I'm not white, I'm not fully considered American. So in both scenarios, I'm seen as a foreigner and feel like there isn't really a full place of belonging. Wow, Justice. Well, thank you for sharing that with everyone who's listening. And I just, I'm really moved by how your experiences have been so related to the book. And I'm really glad you're kind of taking more time to self-reflect upon this. And so, I mean, I heard you say that in the United States, since you're not white, you're not fully considered an American. And I think your analysis brings up an interesting point, because even though American isn't technically a race, um, it's widely debated on what makes like what makes an American. And so to you, what does being an American mean? That's a really good question. Um, to me, being American means making your own decisions. Like you choose where you like to work, live or marry. But unfortunately, um, in this country, there are still so many people who believe that being American means being white and speaking English um and one experience I had I remember when I was like in class and we were all introducing ourselves and um I said I was Asian American one of my classmates like commented he's like wait I had no idea you're half white you don't look white and I was just so confused because I was like when did I ever tell you I was white and for the longest time, I was, like, wondering, like, what did he mean by that? And I was, like, oh, he connected being American with being white. Wow. And Oh, wow. Yeah. And looking back, I find it so funny because it's just so dumb. But the sad part is, is that there are so many people who think that way and believe that to be American you need to be white and so in that situation I was like wait so if I'm not half white does that not make me American and so I think that one experience like yeah has a like that really made me question whether like am I considered American or not wow yeah yeah, thank you, Justice. I wish we could literally com- have this conversation for hours and hours and hours, but sadly, we do have to end it. So thank you all for tuning in. Next episode, we will continue to discuss important passages and the connections that we have made to our books. Don't miss out. And until next time, bye. 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 bye.